You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Being dead thing, you're doomed. Enjoy the singing, the sword of Damocles is swinging. Hey everybody, that's Alex Brayman from Beetlejuice singing that whole Being Dead thing. I thought it was a great song to wrap up this season of the Producers Perspective podcast because... Beetlejuice is a terrific story from this past season. People were concerned about that show when it first opened and the critics weren't as kind as perhaps they should have been. But the show has been steaming ahead and doing great business. Once again, proof that word of mouth is all that matters in this business. So I thought it would be a great wrap-up for the season, a great reminder for all of you. Now, we are getting into the final episode of the season. This episode is sponsored by the Terry Knickerbocker Studio, which offers a two-year acting conservatory, workshop, studio rentals, one-on-one coaching, beginning acting classes. Yeah, that's right. All you rookies out there, you want to get into it? Start with Terry, uh, the best actor training in New York. The conservatory training is based on the Meisner technique, which is very fancy and very good. I studied it in college myself. But Terry offers a holistic approach to actor training with a commitment to nurturing the total actor, mind, body, and soul. And frankly, so much of acting is your head and it getting in the way of what you want to do, and Terry takes care of that. He has helped some amazing people over the years, including Oscar winner Sam Rockwell, who has trusted to coach him through every single film, TV, and theater project he's ever worked on throughout the course of his career, even referring to Terry as his secret weapon. For more information, visit the TerryNickerbockerStudio.com. That's TerryNickerbockerStudio.com, or just Google it. I'm sure it'll pop up. And now, on to this very, very unique final episode of the Producers Perspective podcast this season. You're going to hear a mashup of clips from all of our guests throughout the season. You'll hear quotes and some jokes and some stuff people shouldn't have said. Just a collage of stuff from this past season. And then don't forget, of course, we will be back next season. We're not going anywhere. We just thought if you missed any, you might like this quick little wrap-up. It's like those 
those old television shows where they used to put a whole bunch of clips into one episode. Get ready for it right now. But first, a little more Alex Brightman and the whole being dead thing. If you die while listening to this album, it's still going to keep playing. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I was obsessed with the New York Times wedding announcements. They were very, very, particularly in the early days, they were very, very pretentious. And everyone was very, you know, everyone had three names. Everyone was a, you know, Raymond Porter III, you know. And they were very, very formal. And I could somehow glean real comedy out of these things. And, you know, they would talk about what the bride was going to be wearing, you know, her grandmother's veil, a silk dubioni, you know, uh, train and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought this was the most pretentious, crazy stuff. And I am still to this day reading in my act the New York Times wedding announcement. So you just read them? You just read I them just within... read them. I literally created a show a number of years ago. And I was like nominated for awards for it, called Julie Halston, Queen of Readings. And Ken, I just read things. But I had to have You, you are the actress that can read the phone book. I you read, are the, really, you can yes, do it. I, I literally read from Vogue, from my Baltimore catechism, from my diary, from the New York Times wedding announcements. And... Charles was the one who said, well, I've booked you, you're doing it. It sold out. I ran that show for two years, Wednesday nights and Saturday, and we would sell out. And this is the thing that was so great. I was able to, and I didn't know that this was going to happen, meld a cabaret career and a one-woman show kind of career with a theatrical career. And it was at that time because so, now it's like the late 80s, early 90s. Billy Stritch, Jim Caruso, Ann Hampton Calloway, Liza Minnelli, she would hang out at 88s. All these people, Julie Gold, Judy Gold, so comedians were starting to get into these club situations as well. That brought casting agents like Jim Carnahan down to these clubs. Scott Ellis first saw me at 88s because he was friends with Liza Minnelli because he did a show with Liza Minnelli. So suddenly there was this blend of cabaret world people, theatrical people, and I literally was able to create a one-person show from the cabaret space world. It brought in casting agents so that now I'm being cast in like Law and Order or you know what I mean TV things like as a guest star and then off-Broadway producers started coming into the situation and suddenly I was told hey 
we think this show could go off Broadway. And Ken Elliott, who was our director for Charles Bush's show, said, I'll direct it. And we created a show called Julie Halston's Lifetime of Comedy. It was nominated for an Outer Critics Circle Award. Drew Dennett was my producer. Dale Lawrence, his girlfriend at the time, she was in our company. She got investors. It ran off Broadway, and I got a TV development deal out of it for CBS. And I did a pilot called Those Two with Harvey Firestein. And it was the precursor to Will and Grace, nine years before Will and Grace. This is amazing. This is what, so correct me if I'm wrong, but what I love doing is, is weaving these threads through people's careers. But because you said yes to Charles Bush, those, all those dominoes fell. And if for some reason you didn't say yes, he might have paid his sister a lot of money to play his co-star. You'd be making a lot of people at that Wall Street firm laugh really hard. The, in the Christmas library. party would be a scream, but I wouldn't have a career as an actress. And do you know, Ken, I still say yes to everything. Well, you're here, for God's sake. You said well, yes to me. It's a perfect I, I, example. I, I you were like, yes I don't know what this podcast is, but okay. No, but I do. I say yes, unless, it's, unless there's such a red flag around it. I say yes to readings when I can. I say yes to workshops when I can. I say yes. I literally just produced, you must know about this, I just produced an industry reading for a friend of mine who wrote a a show, which I can't say on the podcast, but it's about the Wright brothers and it's hilarious. I just said yes. I love talented people. I like being around talented people. Why not? I, I got a shot. Why not give others a shot? That's what this whole community is about. I have a, a client named Judy Gold who's a comic, and she's quite funny, and she calls the office often, and but when she calls, she announces herself to my receptionist as, uh, it's Eleanor Roosevelt to Mark Sandroff, but she'll have a different name every day. So I get, so one day my receptionist tells me, uh, Judy's on the phone again, she says she's Barbara Streisand today. I said, oh, really? So I pick up the phone, and in my... In my way, I said, hello, gorgeous. I picked up the phone and said, hello, gorgeous. And all of a sudden, I hear, uh, Mark, I, had to t- I would like to talk to you about the, this, uh, the getting securing rights. For I said, wait a minute, wait a minute here. I said, I waited my whole life to talk to you on a telephone. I was just deceived. Somebody told me it was somebody pretending to you. Can we start this over, please? And she laughed, and she said, yes, let's start over. Hi, Mark, this is Barbara. I was no more collected at that point than I was a moment prior, but she had called because she she was told by her director, who I think was sitting in the room saying, call him, he'll faint, he'll give you anything you want. And she wanted to secure rights in an arrangement that my client Peter Matz had written for his wife, Marilyn, and Marilyn was refusing to give the permission. And so the director, Richard J. Alexander, had her call me directly thinking I would move heaven on earth for her. And I did, and I talked Marilyn into it, and um, it was that very beautiful, slow arrangement of uh, cockeyed optimist, um, and uh, it was Peter's arrangement. Peter was her original arranger, but they weren't together at that time, and uh, then uh, he died in Marilyn at the funeral. His wife sang that arrangement, and Barbara heard it and wound up with it. And so anyway, that's my interaction with Barbara. I think we've come a long way. I'd like to think we've come a long way um, socially. and um, But, you know, I think consistently the best 
feedback that we get from our clients because believe it or not, we still follow up the next day. So if you see a performance, you're getting a call the next day. Um, is the emotional roller coaster that anyone can experience, whether it's Dear Evan Hansen, whether it's most recently Moulin Rouge, and like, you know, I want these women calling say, I want to be 20 again. You know, we all do, yes. But even when I was 20, I didn't have dancing legs like that. But it's um it's really sharing of emotions that we are able to get from our clients who we've known, most of them who we've known for years and years. Um, or it's the, you know, not just the sad bits, it's, it's the humor. I've never laughed so hard and I didn't expect that. So what a wonderful way to walk into a theater. You've paid for your ticket. You've been hopefully bombarded with smart artwork and marketing, but you're going into a theater with some level of expectation, right? And then to just be moved to the point of tears Sad tears if you're crying, but also tears because you're laughing so hard. Where else in this world does that happen? And where does it happen with, you know, a thousand other people in the room? People are acting out a chapter of your life. And I'm taken, I'm swept away, but I'm like, oh yeah. For just for instance, there's a, I remember so clearly um, sitting at my desk, my laminated desk in my corporate office and writing Jeff Bowen would a way that we worked together when we started making stuff is he would call and leave musical, uh, like a tune. He would leave a melody on my voicemail at work. And then I would have my phone pressed to my ear at work and I would look like I was super busy and people would approach my desk and I'd be like, hold on. And I just keep replaying the voicemail and I would write the lyrics to a tune at work while the Sorry. phone were, was on your because I was listening yeah I was listening to the tune but if somebody approached my desk it just looked like I was transcribing a voicemail so I remember super clearly writing this little thing that's in title of show just as an example where I go can't you see I'm dying inside at my corporate job can't you see I'm dying inside if you shine a flashlight in my butt you'd see I'm dying inside right I remember sitting at my desk writing it so when I see a production of title of show it's like a time machine and I'm swept away and I remember all the specific places I was when those things happened. But it is like watching a Christmas pageant that's depicting a chapter of our lives. It's so weird and awesome. And I can't believe anybody gives a shit, but rock the fuck on. So Ordinary Days is a very intimate musical. It's a four-character musical that follows these two pairs of characters. Uh, one uh, are two young people who meet for the first time and sort of form this reluctant friendship. Uh, and the other two two characters are in a relationship that's sort of unraveling for reasons that unfold in the plot. And uh, I really wrote it because I got... Uh, invited to this program called the Dramatist Guild Fellowship, which if you're a young playwright or musical theater writer, is a fantastic program that I highly recommend. Basically a year-long fellowship that that brings together playwrights and musical theater writers um, into a year-long writer's group, essentially, um, where you're bringing in material, workshopping it every week. When I did it, it was uh, run by Lynn Aarons and Stephen Flaherty, and they bring in all kinds of fancy guest people to hear your work and give you feedback. And I, it's sort of an embarrassing story. I had been so excited to get accepted into this fellowship that I showed up on the first day, and we're in the conference room at the Dramatist Guild, and Stephen Flaherty says, Welcome, everyone. Um, let's go around the room and talk about 
what project you're going to work on in this year-long fellowship. And I had I'd been so excited just to get in that I had not thought about what I was going to work on. I was like, I'm just going to show up and it's going to be awesome. I'm in this writer's group. Um, so people were going around the table outlining these projects that they've been thinking about for months. And it got to me. And in a panic, I said, I'm going to start something brand new. It's going to be set in contemporary New York City. <laughs> and I went home in a panic and and just started writing songs. And initially I thought, you know, I'll just write some songs and put together a song cycle type project because that was sort of a, a very in vogue thing for to do at the time. So I just started writing a bunch of songs. And like I said, I really like plot and story. So that just sort of naturally evolved into this musical that's told, it's all told through songs. So it has kind of a song cycle structure to it. But you follow these characters beginning, middle and end through the course of the evening. And, and by the end of that fellowship year, I had the first draft of it. I think Broadway is starting to really broaden its horizons as well, right? The, the great white way is getting a little more colorful. Uh, and so that was the impetus behind In the Heights. So, you know, when Lynn was first starting to work on that, I, I was running the theater at the drama bookshop. Um, and Tommy and I had started this small production company because we didn't know any better. Uh, why wouldn't you tell us how hard it was, Kim? Uh, so you know, it's funny. I will just say this. Those words that you just spoke right now, we didn't know any better, I didn't know what I was doing, are the most commonly uttered words on this podcast mm. by people successful like yourself. Yeah. It seems like the, the key to success at the beginning is not knowing what the fuck you're doing. Absolutely. You know, when you see the ceiling, you bump up against it. When you don't... You just keep building. You just keep going higher and higher. Uh, and I, you know, I think in essence, those mistakes that you make that you didn't know you were making are such a blessing. They're so huge, right? And then when you know afterward, you're like, Oh, wow. Maybe I would have made a couple of different choices for sure. It, it might have gone a little bit faster. I mean, you know, it took seven, eight years to get in the heights to where it was, but you learn so much, right? Like there's no other way than to just do it. And, and this is something I, I often will say to friends and, and people who come and ask for advice. I'm like, yeah, just say you're going to put it up and put it up. Did you ever want to quit? No. Never? No. Never. It's not in my mechanisms. It's not in my... So that was another thing we were raised with, that you never, ever, ever give up. Ever. My dad was a coach. <laughs> and so we were raised with all these mantras. And uh, he had gone through a really difficult time. His dad died when he was young, and his mom gave that to him of this, like, never giving up, and you can do anything, whatever the challenge might be. And for him, you know, he talks about how after we were hurt, it was, like, his greatest challenge, and, and he was going to coach and father us through it. And my mom was just really, really smart and sort of a brilliant advocate. So together they really gave me these tools to say, okay, when someone says we can't do it, if there's a will, there is a way. So Ali, you get to have the will and then together you'll find the way. And, um, and so I, so for me, like giving up or like, you know, I've had awful days, but there's never been a part of me that was like, I can't do this ever. And another piece that I think is so important that not a lot of people talk about is patience. 
one of the things that my disability has taught me is like ninja patience, like having to have the most patience at the, at the times that you don't want to have patience. And that has come into, you know, into practice for me in my career. Right. You've been, it's not like you just started doing this last no. week. <laughs> no, no, no. And so, you know, in those years after college, when I graduated and moved to LA because I thought maybe the TV industry might be more open to my chair and Glee had just hit the air. And so I was like, that's a world that's already created that I could fit into, but really like not, no doors were opening and I was just bored and I was like trying to write my own show and I was meeting a lot of people. And that is a huge part of my, my success. You're one of the few people that actually have run big nonprofit institutions and then have jumped over to Broadway to run big commercial institutions, if you will, Broadway shows. How are the two similar, running a nonprofit and running a Broadway show like Hades Town, or different? Or are they? Well, I think the similarities probably have to do with, you know, organizational size, number of people. But, uh, but in every other way, it's different. When you're producing a Broadway show, it's a single, you know, you have a single show, a single cast. Everything is about how you keep that thing um, fresh and go. And I'm really talking about once the show is open and sort of running the operation, how you keep it alive and running and fresh. In all of my years working in the not-for-profit, I never had a show run longer than six weeks. So it's a completely different mindset. And you're, and you're playing a show in the same building for the same audience who's coming back over and over again to see the next thing, as opposed to with a Broadway show, what you're trying to do is figure out who's that next audience and that next audience and that next audience who's going to come and see this one thing that you have on offer. I would say that's probably the biggest difference. In terms of the... Back end, the financial structure, um, I actually quote Joey Parnes, and maybe he was quoting somebody else, I don't know, but <clears throat> he said this once to a group of students that I had invited him to talk to, that the difference between the not-for-profit and the commercial is that in the not-for-profit, money is the means by which you make your art, and in the commercial theater, art is the means by which you make your money. And it's a, it's a kind of crude reduction on the one hand, but it does capture the difference in mentality of the two, you know, structures, except that I would say I believe that art and commerce don't have to be in opposition. And I hope what Hades Town stands for is actually proof that, in fact, when you are focused on making a great piece of art, you also can make something that is commercially viable. I think when you have the benefit of building a career outside of Broadway, you see Broadway differently than the people who spend most of their career building work within Broadway. And so I actually don't see the limitations because I haven't experienced them. And I wonder sometimes if the people who have been working on the street for as long as they have, have, have almost self-imposed those limitations instead of, you know, coming as an outsider. So I'm going to try to maintain my outsider status as long as I can so that I can keep seeing things that aren't there. So as a producer, I don't think about the destination. I think about this this very special thing that I have to care for 
But I think about what is this piece of art? What's the relationship to the audience? Who is that audience? Where does it belong? What's the scale of it? And then I figure out what the path is that supports that thing. And sometimes along the way I'm surprised and the path shifts. But it's in reaction to the actual relationship between the work and the audience, as opposed to, I didn't set out to become a Broadway producer. I just set out to make great work. And some of it will end up on Broadway, and some of it will go to all of these other strange places that my work goes to. No, I don't think I was looked at differently because I was doing the job. Um, I think that was just sort of accepted. Uh, I never felt any kind of discrimination, you know, but you that was a world in which it was de rigueur, so maybe I wouldn't have felt it. I once was at a conference, and uh, a woman was there, and she said, I don't like the way your boss treats you. I said, really? Why? You know, I thought he was very generous and, you know, paid me well, etc. She said, well, you know, he asks you to get him his coffee. And I said, you know, I'm an assistant. That's part of what I was hired to do. So I didn't get, I didn't get it at all. But I never felt held back by anyone. I, I was often the only woman in the room, and that didn't really phase me. I was at that point also all, often the youngest person in the room. It just, it just, I just did the job. It didn't occur to me that there was anything there to rail against. I think like in, in any field, uh, in any profession, there are best practices. Um, and even uh, Aristotle, when he was writing the Poetics, um, wasn't doing it, uh, wasn't establishing rules for tragedy because we only have some of them for comedy, but the ones for tragedy we have, and it wasn't based on like, he, he didn't do it in a cave somewhere, he based it on theater going and seeing what worked the best, and these seem to be the things that were in common about what worked the best, whether it's like unity of time and place and you know certain things that happen with your protagonist, um, and so there are some best practices. And so when I talk to writers, I'm like, you know, here's some things that have worked in the past. Um, but I don't think that equates to a formula. What makes something successful is that it's appealing. You know, they've got some characters that are appealing. And you can have, you know, uh, an anti-hero who's just like a bad person, but there's something about that that's appealing. And I think you need to have a, a clear world and some um, tell the audience where we are and what's happening, what are the rules of storytelling within the first you know, 10 or 15 minutes, so then they can not worry about it and just go with you. Um, that's pretty consistent. But I think those rules of storytelling can vary. Uh, and what's been so exciting about um, musicals uh, in the last um, you know, several years is that a lot of things that are not formulaic have gotten attention. Um, and been appealing and, and shown themselves to be successful. So I don't think there's a formula, but I think, you know, like anything, you have to learn the rules in order to break the rules. Um, and there are some rules, but that's just based on what's been successful, not that they've been invented uh, in the dark. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think there's a formula, but I do think every show has a DNA and we need to learn it. But it has to have a reason for being, and it has to have a central appeal to it and a fire to it. Like, why are people going to come to see this thing? That's the question I'm always asking. And for Town, I think it was, there was something really exciting and vibey about the voice. And then everything that's layered into it, like, it's actually not just vibey. It's about something. And it has meaning. And so, you know, the work that that, that I've done on it with uh, with the team has been about just 
wading through a lot of material and getting to the what's the key thing and what is this melody that he found and what is this story of the epics and how does it relate to other things and um, and part of it was just being in the world of Hades Town and having it tell us what was key and uh, and then just refine it over time and get it clearer and better and more inviting. I always admire Irving Berlin's ability to write simply. When you look at a song like Always, which is insanely simple, but it's perfect. You can't change a syllable. You know, a lot of the Rogers and Hart songs, like a lot of times now with shows that I do, the, the lyrics are being rewritten to the end. The sort of feeling that we've never found the final version of these lyrics, you know, and even after they open, it's like, oh, we rewrote such and such. If you look at a lot of Rogers and Hart songs, the songs are perfect. You, you could never go back and rewrite them. You know, every, every word is perfectly chosen. Keep in mind, I've never actually written anything, so I mean, this is going to seem irritating to everyone who's actually writing shows. I like to add space. I think sometimes it's hard to know that an audience can really only take in so much. I didn't always feel like this. I, but then I feel sort of, you know, I, I did things without realizing they were big deals. I sort of, I mean, I certainly, when I was a child, I felt I didn't have confidence like that. But I sort of feel that once I got away, I had a very sort of, you know, difficult childhood. My father was very violent and it was kind of, he was obviously sort of mentally ill in some way. And I, so when I got away from all that, I felt very liberated and sort of, and I went, I, I left and went to drama school. And so suddenly I was, you know, with people that I felt comfortable with and I related to and I was doing things that I found exciting. So I, and I, very early on, I did a thing that was very scary. Me and my friend at drama school did a stand-up comedy double act. And that's terrifying. We would often walk on stage not really knowing what we were going to say. I would often start playing a song at the piano and not really knowing if I, was, if I knew the chords. <laughs> and uh, stuff like that. So it was, um, I think that's probably the start of it. I, you know, I, I thought, what's the worst thing? You can just, you have to admit to the audience. That's what you have to do. You have to admit to the audience that you're not confident you're going to be able to do this. And I think if you're vulnerable like that and you make a joke of it, then it's actually like at the end of this uh, legal immigrant uh, recording on Audible. I wanted to do one of those things that, you know, remember at the end of CDs when we used to play CDs, there sometimes used to be a secret track. A little Easter egg. Yes. So I wanted to do that. And so we have one at the very end of it. I, I told the audience that, but, but I just decided on the day of the recording, of the first day of the recording, that's what I wanted to do. But I hadn't really, didn't, I hadn't really practiced the song very well. And um, we started, the band started to play it and I started singing and I, I fucked up and I had to start again. I thought, oh, sorry. But I started again, I fucked up again. I fucked up three times. And then, um, and then the fourth time I looked at the words because I just thought, oh. and I finally got it. And it's actually really lovely. I love at the end, I go, thank you for indulging me. Did you keep the fuck ups on the... Yes. That's the best. Yeah, I I insisted that that we keep them on the thing. And I think that's what sort of, you know, metaphor for me, that I think it's really important to not try to tend you're perfect, actually show your imperfections. So that makes you a more interesting person. I would not be a very good podcast host (laughs) if I did not say, will you freestyle for us? Oh my gosh. Way out. Only if you provide a beat. So here's oh, how you do that. Okay. Oh, wait, we're getting a little academy lesson right now. Yeah, it's for true. It. All right. So there are two words you need. Okay. First word is boots. Boots. Great. And that was awesome. Boots. Yeah, because it's like a plosive, right? So when Shakespeare writes soliloquies and someone's angry, it's B's and P's, right? So this is a boots. Boots. Great. And then the next word is cuts. Cuts. Yeah, like, oh, it cuts my finger. Oh, cuts. 
Great. Yes. And perfect. Because it's a like imagine your mouth is like a cave and then there's the stalactite in the middle of the cave and that's where the it's a soft palate. Yes. Cuts. cuts. Great. So now you're going to go boots and cuts and boots and cuts and boots and uh-huh. Yeah. Cut. Don't want to cut this cut. interview short because I'm just chilling up here with Ken Davenport. Now we in the top of 1501 and there's not rain because it's going to bring some sun to the sky and to the rain that we done. All right. So, Ken, thank you very much for having me as your guest. Cuts. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to all of you for putting up with my boots and cuts. We will see you next time. Thanks again so much, all you listeners out there, for tuning in this season. Hope you've had as much fun as I have had. And we've got a ton of surprises for you next season, which will begin February 24th. So this is a great time to go catch up on all the older episodes. We've got over 200. If you have listened to them all, amazing. If you haven't, go back and catch some of them. You have a couple of months before we kick off the new season of the Producers Perspective Podcast, February 24th, just in time for all those new shows to open this spring and get into the Tonys. We'll run through June 1st. That will be the end of next season, June 1st. That's the Tonys or June 7th, so we'll cut off right before that. If you are looking for the perfect gift, if you still need something for the holidays for your Broadway fan in your life, get them Broadway's favorite board game, Be a Broadway Star. Go to BeABroadwayStar.com. It is a no-brainer gift. Everybody loves it. And I'm not just saying that just because I came up with it. People do just love it. Uh, We get tremendous feedback on it every single year. We've got expansion packs. So go check it out. It's a great gift. I made it because it's exactly what I wanted to play when I was a kid, uh, a college student. And frankly, I play it now. If you're enjoying this podcast, do please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell us who you want to hear from next season. We'll go get them. Tell us the names of the people you want to see as guests and we'll do our best to go get them on the podcast. If you want to find more of me while the podcasts are taking a little hiatus over the holidays, you can follow me on Instagram at Ken Davenport B-Way or check out my blog, subscribe at theproducersperspective.com. And now this week's hashtag songwriter of the week, Kerrigan Loudermilk. I love this duo. And my friend and Godspell cast member, Lindsay Mendez, is singing a Kerrigan Loudermilk song called Hand in Hand from their immersive house party musical called The Bad Years. If you like what you hear and want to learn more, visit www.kerrigan-loudermilk.com or at kerrigan underscore loudermilk on Instagram. Google them. These are some fantastic songwriters. Enjoy Lindsay Mendez singing Hand in Hand. And happy holidays, and we will see you in the new year for the next season of the Producers Perspective Podcast. Hi y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Gapone. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.